welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. For this edition of Radio Curious, broadcast at the beginning of our 25th year on the air, I invited my friend John Gravois to interview me about my experiences, reflections, and thoughts over the past 24 years that I've been the host and producer of Radio Curious. John Gravois is the deputy editor of Pacific Standard Magazine and a contributing editor to the Washington Monthly. His work has appeared on This American Life, in the New York Times Magazine, The New Republic, and Slate, among others. John Gravois lives in Albany, California. He and I visited in the studios of Radio Curious on December 27, 2014. We began our conversation with his comments about the archives found on the Radio Curious website. So last night I was just going and listening to the archives of your show. Just noticed this incredible breadth of what you talk about on the show, what's been on the show. You've got shows about corporate personhood. You had a show dissecting the grand jury decision in Ferguson, these big national issues. And then shows about these sort of universal human concerns like jealousy and sex. And shows about more local Mendocino County concerns. These big, sprawling issues, but you have this very direct, democratic, curious way of approaching them. I love the way that you opened the show where you were interviewing a local mortician, where you, you just started by saying, what is embalming and how does it work? So I wanted to ask you, over the course of this interview, what is a radio show by a country lawyer about basically anything in the world, and how does it work? To begin with, I thought I'd ask, could you describe where we're broadcasting from? The, the Radio Curious office is, uh, is uh, forgive me if I'm revealing a company secret, but uh, it's your house, or it, it's, a, it, it's a branch of your house. It's a branch of my home, yes. And can you tell me, tell me what kind of place is Ukiah? It's a municipality of about 15,000 people in a valley of about 35,000 people in a county of about just under 90,000 people with an area larger than Rhode Island and Delaware combined. How do you approach somebody when, when you are getting in touch with um, a, a nationally prominent intellectual figure or author? What, how do you explain yourself, your interest? What do you, how do you describe the show? It's easier now because I can say go to the website. We record live, which means that we pretend that we're live on the air, but we're not. So if you give an answer, I tell the guest uh, before the interview that if you would like to change it because uh, you would like to say something that represents your feelings better, uh, do so. Uh, Tell me and do so, and I'll edit out the first part. In an interview I did with Terry Gross about 20-plus years ago, uh, she's— This was you interviewing her? Yes. Uh Terry Gross of Fresh Air about 20 years ago. Uh, She said uh, that—I asked her about the art of interviewing, uh, how she puts the program together, 
And who is Terry Gross? And that program is on the Radio Curious website. But one of the things that she said is, um, I tell the guests, she tells her guests, and, and I tell mine based on her recommendation, that if I ask you something that's too personal, tell me, and we'll move on. That gives uh, a me, or, or she, as the interviewer, full reign to ask anything. And if I've crossed someone's boundary, that means that they have to say, wait, I don't want to go there. Right. But they feel safe, knowing that they have permission to... That's right. In a way, you're just a guy who's reading his complement of news and book reviews, but you're, you have this you have this other way of engaging with the news, which is that you, you call people up and interview them. That's right. Anybody in media is just a guy or a woman who encounters the world and then feels empowered. But many of us in the media have big organizations. There's this whole institutional culture that, that, is, that is all about picking up the phone and asking people to, to, to talk on the record. I'm impressed that this is something you do without any major financial incentive, without any institutional backing. I, I think if you decided to stop, there wouldn't be somebody to fire you. So tell me... Um, how, how do you spend the rest of your time? I uh, practice law full-time three days a week, and I jokingly say I practice law to support my radio habit. I've been doing that for 40 years here in Ukiah. I went to law school because it seemed to be, to me, to be the most effective method for social change. Law? Yes, practicing law. Uh, my father was a lawyer, so I grew up in a context of those kinds of discussions and I like to travel, and I like to ask questions, and I've always liked to ask questions. If you ask a question, you're directing the conversation. Absolutely. If I want to know something, I'll be inclined to do that. Given that you have a platform with this show, it's called Radio Curious, so I take it that it's motivated largely by, by curiosity, wanting to know more. But are there any issues, given that you have this platform, you have this you have a kind of soapbox that you, you feel like you're trying to bring uh, into the, um, bring to the, to the public ears um, that, that other media are, are, haven't been covering. Have, have there been times when you say, okay, because I have this outlet, I really want to bring this subject that nobody else is talking about to a bigger audience? I wouldn't say that it's a subject that nobody else is talking about. But I would say it's a subject about which I'm personally curious, mm -hmm. and I want to know more. And because I have this outlet, I'm willing to have a serious conversation with someone, edit it, and present it. I don't charge for the programs. They're free to anybody. I do that because I don't want to be influenced by anybody. I don't want someone to say, I want you to interview this person. Part of your job in doing Radio Curious is interviewing this person. Uh, since I have um, the microphone, right. I make those executive decisions. And um, it's a gift. But you've built this show so that you're not beholden to, to people in, in, in any number of ways. And you, you describe it on your website as a gift. And you described it to me just now as a gift. So that's, that's part of how you conceive of it. Is there a, a business model, so to speak, here? Other than uh, sometimes I wonder if I'm hemorrhaging money into uh, <laughs> upgrading the equipment. 
Um, no, there really isn't a business model. There's a curiosity model. You know, what I was getting at earlier with that other question about whether there are issues that you're trying to really bring to the fore, it's a curiosity show, but is it, is it ever an, an, an activist show? Do you ever, do, do you see that line as something you, you cross sometimes, you never want to cross? The activism in my personal experience, uh, and again, this goes back to, to my legal work, uh, has to do with our personal issues of how we choose to live our lives that make no difference uh, to anybody else uh, should be left up to us. So that's a, an example of your, your work as a lawyer influencing what you're curious about yes. and, and influencing how you decide what to put on the show. For this edition of Radio Curious, I invited journalist John Gravois to interview me about my experiences, reflections, and thoughts over the past 24 years that I've been the host and producer of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. On universal issues, how do you decide what, what you want to what you want to put on the show? Aside from the, the, aside from the, we've already talked about the sort of logistics of it. You're looking at books that are coming out, but. The topics. Yeah. And the people. I think the topics control the people Mm -hmm. that I choose. Uh, The topics are, um, who are we? How have we become who we are? So I'm particularly interested in um, evolutionary psychology evolutionary biology, um, the change that has come to the human species approximately 10,000 years ago uh, when um, it was realized that by planting a seed, we would not have to pick up and move frequently and no longer be hunter-gatherers. And the consequence of that in terms of if we uh, or any individual or group of us Uh, live in a certain area, we control that land. And then who comes in and who doesn't come in? So that changed the migratory habits. But what it brought with it and what the migratory habits developed is when um, going back, let's say, 20, 30,000 years ago, uh, groups of people would go into a region or an area where other people lived who looked slightly different, who made sounds uh, to which other people responded, language, that, we, that uh, one group did not understand, there was a, uh, a certain setback, step back. Um, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we communicate? Uh, the concern for, um, for having children propagating the species, uh, undoubtedly known that it was the, the females that would bear the children, um, I think to some extent they became at risk uh, for captivity for bearing children. Um, going back to uh, the, the Neanderthals and the Homo sapiens, what, were, what was the connection there? That's an area I'm curious to discover. And then within the birth of agriculture... The territorial domination and control. Right. And when people... Which, which kind of brings up the, 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 the legal issues you're talking about. That's right. right. And the language issues and the exposure to life issues. Um, 
one of the one of the guides in in my thinking um, is can, let's consider our first experiences. We have a first experience, and and take uh, whatever it may be. The primary ones are in the earliest years of life. Um, for example, a child who um, who cries is picked up and cuddled, and in the warmth of uh, someone who picks them up and cuddled, usually the mother, uh, and in the extended family. Um, or the child is left to cry, stop crying, and is fed on, on a time regime, as opposed to being fed when it's hungry. Uh, what is the child learning? What are the adults who care for that child teaching the child? Whether it's in a uh, nuclear family of two parents and, and some children, or an extended family where there are aunts and uncles and grandparents and, and cousins? Or is it in an orphanage? Let's look at language development. We are all born with an innate uh, ability to make sounds with the throat and the tongue. And we learn that, we learn which sounds to make by listening. And the extent to which we learn that in the womb, we don't really know, but we know it's uh, uh, much more clear if uh, someone will hold an object and repeat the name of the object and show it to uh, the young child, whether it's uh, a child of days, weeks, months, or years, and reward them when they name the, uh, the object. Take that child to another culture, or t- take that person as an adult to another culture, and use the same object, it's hard to identify. Add to that the concept that uh, accents, the manner in which we speak, are pretty well developed by uh, the time a person reaches puberty. Let's take that to food. We learn uh, the concept of comfort food, of what we were given when we were young children at a time when perhaps when we were ill or for holidays and everybody was having a good time. Special flavors for special holidays. Go to another culture where the flavors are different, uh, smells are different, and say, well, I don't know that I like Mm -hmm. that. And often people will refuse something uh, because it's different, not because they have tried it and distinguished it. Let's take that to a restaurant. Go to a restaurant and have um, a really great meal. Well, that's the best restaurant I've ever been to, an anecdotal experience. Or go to another one and have a meal that was not good at all. I'll never go to that place again. It was terrible. Another anecdotal experience. Uh, Compare that to double-blind studies Uh uh, where people are are given something. Um, It makes me think of... um, of an experience I had with a cousin. Um, we were in Canada. There were several of us. And uh, we had several flavors of ice cream. And we took taste tests. We gave each other taste tests. And uh, my cousin gave another person in the party a taste test by, we, we had, I think, four flavors. So he gave this person uh, a taste of one ice cream, asked to identify it. Gave a person... Uh, a taste of some more ice cream, 
asked to identify a different answer, and so forth, on four times. What was interesting is that he used the same ice cream all four times. <laughs> and was, was it identified differently? Identified differently. <laughs> because we all knew what the four flavors were and expected right. that flavor two, three, and four would all be different from each other in flavor one. So, so, you, so, you, so you, you've, you started out by talking about an interest in evolutionary psychology, and then it seems like you're talking about an interest in, in, in childhood psychology and attachment theory, and then, and then an interest in how culture kind of stands between and mediates all those things. Are you kind of laying out a little bit of a map of, of what, what Barry Vogel's curiosity looks like? And, and where, I think where so, you, yes, yeah. yes. That, that, that's, that's accurate. What's the hardest interview you've done? Generally, they're more, the more I prepare, the more difficult they are. Uh-huh. My goal in an interview is to draw the listener into it. When someone contacts me and tells me about a program that they've enjoyed, and they tell me that they, uh, were, they sat listening to the program and they were late for a meeting because they wanted to hear the end of the program, that tells me I have achieved my goal. Absolutely. What's the hardest interview you've ever done? There, there were two that, that come to mind. Um, one was with uh, Jimmy Carter, the former president. The other interview that was very difficult was with um, an author named Chaim Potok, uh, who wrote The Chosen, uh, yeah. The Gift of Asher Lev. He wrote a book that uh, was a narrative nonfiction called The Gates of November about a family uh, growing up in the Soviet Union and a, a very uh, complex and distraught father-son relationship. The more I read of a book, the harder it is to isolate the facts to interview so that the listener understands it and it, it makes a, a coherent sense. When you're interviewing people, you always end with three questions. So I thought I'd, I'd end by putting them to you. Can you describe any eureka moments you've had over the course of your life? Actually, the one that I think is the most uh, influential has existed over a continuum. It began when I was starting the 10th grade. My mother enrolled in a doctoral program in psychology. And I didn't know what a doctoral program was. I had a sense of what psychology was. What changed in our home was that she wasn't um, as available after dinner. Uh, and she would study in her bedroom. So I went in and I said, uh, so tell me what you're doing. And she said, well, I'm going to get a doctorate in psychology. And I said, what's that? And she explained it, and I said, how long will it take? And she said, three to four years, uh, which was longer than high school. And I was starting in the 10th grade, and that seemed like the three years of high school at that time seemed interminable. I was concerned where my mother was going. I asked her, what makes you think you can do that? Huh. And she said, if somebody else can do it, there's no reason she can't. And then in the next four years, she did it. She drove uh, 50 miles each way, twice a week, to classes, and uh, she succeeded in doing it. And the concept of if somebody else can do it, there's no reason that I can't, became um, an instruction in my life. And as I've been friends with her and um, 
blessed by the fact that she lives three quarters of a mile from where you and I are sitting now. Um, that's how she is. She's active, alert, sometimes uh, uh, says, I'm confused, I'm not sure, quite sure what's happening. And I say, well, that's true for all of us, but uh, <laughs> at least you're admitting it. And she's 105. Yes. And that was the Eureka Continuum. What makes you think you can do it? Yes. And that, I think, is a foundation of Radio Curious. If I want to talk to somebody, they're not going to call me. But if I call them, there's, uh, it opens the possibility that they will. And then we have a conversation. I remember in taking a, a, a driving trip across the United States in um, the summer of 1963. Uh, we were going um, uh, near Independence, Missouri. And I said, let's go talk to Harry Truman. And the person uh, who I was with said, you're crazy. He'll never talk to you. I said, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, here's a park. I'll, I'll, let's meet in, a, in two, three hours. So I changed into uh, a suit and a uh, tie and walked in. And the guard said, can I help you? And he said, yeah, I'd like to interview Mr. Truman. I'm a political science student from San Francisco. He said, come back in an hour. So I came <laughs> back in an hour. And he said, go through that door over there. So I went into a room. The door on the other side of the room opened. And somebody came in. He said, what do you want? And I said, I'd like to talk to Mr. Truman. And he said, what do you want? And then I realized who I was talking to. <laughs> Harry Truman. That's right. <laughs> he said, what do you want to know? But before you tell me that, I know all about you guys. You uh, students, you come here and you ask us questions, and you uh, then use it to write your book. So what do you want to know? And were you doing that, or were you just no, being curious? No, I just wanted to talk to him. <laughs> and I knew that, you know, yeah, he wasn't going to flag me down on the highway and say, hey, Vogel, you want to talk to me? I'm about President Truman. Absolutely, that's true, Yeah. And that, you have to flag them down. That's right. And some people will say no. Right. But if they say no, that's an anecdotal connection between them and me. It has no influence on the next person who I'm interested in talking to. There is a magical thinking that can, that can take hold where you can say, if you get rejected, you're going to get rejected by the next person. But You were rejected by one but person. But you're insulated against that. That's good. Yeah, there, there's no, no reason to believe it'll happen again. I've always thought one of the most beautiful things about being a journalist is just that simple permission you give yourself to pick up the phone and ask. It's just this sort of cultural container. If I wasn't a journalist, I would be shy, and I probably wouldn't feel like I had the um, standing to just bother somebody and ask them questions uh, and and be curious about, about what they think. Uh, you seem to have... Um, and any any journalist just really at the end of the day is giving themselves that standing, but but they it takes some institutional backing sometimes. Um, the backing was uh, from my mother. Uh huh. You know, if somebody else can do it. There's no reason why I can't. Right. And everybody has to start uh, uh, from a, a, a point of departure where they are at the moment. If you want to take a trip, you got to stand up and take the first step. So what is the next step? You usually ask people at the end of your shows uh, what they expect to do with the rest of their life. May I ask? What, what do you expect to do with the rest of your life? Continuing asking questions, and if uh, I can, I'd uh, like to put a comic strip together. Do you think you'll be able to do both, or do you think one has to 
one has to yield to the other. I don't know. So another question you ask people is to recommend a book, and we happen to be surrounded by all of your books. There's a lot of them. One of them is The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson. And it talks about the six million people, black people, that migrated from the southern states uh, to the northeast around Chicago and to California over three generations from 1915 to 1970. And I think it's a must-read for everybody. It puts in a perspective of uh, the drama, the horror, the fear, the successes, the escape, the coming to a new life in a new place, um, and making a new life. Uh, it's, uh, it follows the story of three people and in three generations. And those stories are supported by interviews with uh, 1,200 people that uh, Isabel Wilkerson did that brought it into um, a larger universe. It's, it's truly a significant book. The other book is uh, called Jacobson's Organ and the Remarkable Nature of Smell by Lyle <laughs> Watson. I've heard of The Warmth of Other Suns. I have not heard of that one. I haven't been able to interview Lyle Watson. I uh, try every now and then to set up an interview. But smell is one of the most fundamental senses. Uh, we can't turn it off. We can close our eyes or we can become deaf. Some people lose their sense of smell, but it's one of the most fundamental issues around. And he talks about it not only in uh, living and breathing critters, but in vegetation. He has a fascinating section in there about um, how trees in a forest that are being cut down uh, react to their neighboring trees being cut down. Huh. I'd love to talk to... On the level of smell. You, yeah, you, uh, huh. yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk to Lyle Watson. Wow. All right. Well, thank you for inviting me to interview you. Well, John Gravois, thank you very much uh, for interviewing me on Radio Curious. It's been a pleasure. It's, 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 very, it's very gallant of you to let an amateur come in and interview a pro. Well, I don't know. I, I know a little <laughs> bit about your work. You're, you're a little younger than me, but I would certainly not say you're an amateur. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. For this edition of Radio Curious, I invited journalist John Gravois to interview me about my experiences, reflections, and thoughts over the past 24 years that I've been the host and producer of Radio Curious. John Gravois is the deputy editor of Pacific Standard Magazine and a contributing editor to the Washington Monthly. His work has appeared on This American Life, in the New York Times Magazine, The New Republic, and Slate, among others. John Gravois lives in Albany, California. The books that I recommend are The Warmth of Other Suns, the epic story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson, and Jacobson's Organ and the Remarkable Nature of Smell by Lyle Watson. 
This program was recorded on December 27, 2014. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org, where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. You may reach us by email. Our address is curious at radiocurious.org or snail mail 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah. That's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482 or by phone, 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Onestead is our associate producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>